1: Sequence star. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space Nuts. Astronauts It feels good. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts, where we talk everything astronomy. Uh, My name's Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is one Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. (laughs) Hello, Andrew. How are you going? Good, but you're not at the astronomy uh, location at the moment. You're at a motel. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Although I'm I'm close
2: to the Australian Astronomical Observatory, I'm in a motel room in Coonabarbran where I've been all week.
1: Yes, and the reason is because you've been involved in a thing called Stargazing Live. We'll talk about that in a moment. We'll also be talking about ancient oxygen that's been uh, discovered or remnants of. Uh, And we've talked about the GRACE satellites in the past and how they've um, uh, become defunct. Uh, Well the satellite that's uh, to replace them has been launched I believe. And uh, a question from last week's podcast about the acceleration of the universe. And uh, someone's come up with an idea as to why that might be the case, Fred. So we'll put that question to you a little later. But uh, Stargazing Live, it's a collaboration between two national broadcasters, that of the BBC and the ABC here in Australia uh, now, uh, and and you've had a busy night of it. You look quite jet lagged, to be honest. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. That's the best compliment <laughs> I've had all day.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's um, so <clears throat> actually uh, the the show has been running as we speak for two nights. It's a it's a three night show goes to air live from eight till nine uh, Australian Eastern Australian time with a with a, a kind of. Um, uh, a, a second program coming afterwards for half an hour, something called Back to Earth, mm. uh, which is where some of the people who've been on the show get around a coffee table and thrash out a few. Big questions and answer emails and things of that sort. So the the history of this program is quite interesting. It it's uh, kicked off in the UK, I think, eleven years ago, uh, by the BBC, and it was designed to have a live uh, a live broadcast that allowed people to find their way around the night sky and point, You know, basically brought people together uh, via television in different locations throughout the UK and in fact elsewhere in the world. It's hosted by Brian Cox, who is. Uh, first of all, a physicist and astronomer, but now a very big media personality, oh, yeah. yes.
1: uh, indeed. I, I would um, imagine that uh, a vast majority of our audience—that's you, me, and my mum—do uh, <laughs> know of Brian Cox. <laughs> Glad your mum does. <laughs> uh, Brian's um,
2: look—he's he has such a way with science outreach. He's passionate about it he is very competent in terms of his knowledge of physics and science generally but the best thing about it is he's a great bloke mm. uh, what you see is what you get brian is uh, you know he's a scientist through and through uh, and when when he talks to us as scientists it's basically just like any other uh, astronomer that you meet uh, at a conference or something uh, but he's got this passion for outreach and of course he is uh, the, the the master at it at the moment. So Brian is one reason why these shows attract such a uh, very broad and and large audiences. Um, and last year, uh, we brought it to Australia for the first time. So, uh, in fact, last year we did two sets of three nights, one for the BBC, and it was live from Siding Spring Observatory. So we, we went to air, if I remember rightly, we went to air at 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We were having rehearsals at 2.30 and things like that. It was pretty dire. And then the following week we did the three slots for the ABC at 8 p.m. Uh, ABC uh, Eastern Australian time. And that's essentially what we've done this year. That We haven't done the BBC segments. There's a lot of BBC people here because it's a collaborative venture uh we are we have now done the second of the three nights the final night is tonight Uh, i -hmm. had my little bit last night talking about the galah survey which you and i have spoken about before uh, and did my bit on back to earth as well which was great fun um The really nice thing is the amount of interest that it sparks and also the amount of media coverage. So the media can't seem to get enough of this thing. So I did a a slot for ABC News Breakfast on TV yesterday morning and I've done many, many radio interviews.
1: I actually was doing my breakfast show on the radio and I glanced up because I do have (laughs) ABC News Breakfast on my TV screen in the studio and I went, oh, look, it's Fred. Oh, uh, so I saw you. I couldn't hear you, but I saw you. No, it's all right. I didn't say anything sensible. But that's,
2: uh, <laughs> it was nice to be there. So, um, and and the other thing that um, uh, this is an unashamed plug, Andrew, but um, the ABC asked me if I would record effectively a podcast. It's something that you can download on your computer or your or your your smartphone or device, whatever it is. Um, and, and the idea is, it's a tour of the night sky, as it is just at the moment uh, in the southern hemisphere. In fact, it's, it's, it's designed for Australia, but it would work for the whole southern hemisphere. And it, it's specially targeted to describe what the night sky is like during the week of stargazing live. But it's valid for the whole of May. Mm. Uh, the idea is, you, you load it onto your device, you stick your headphones in your ears, you go outside, um, and switch it on, and uh, a voice very like the one you're hearing now uh, tells you what you're looking at in the sky. But the great thing is the ABC have done some very clever things with this. So there's animations which will show up on your device. So they illustrate what I'm talking about and let you see your way among the constellations and find the Milky Way and all the rest of it. Uh, that's, uh, as of yesterday, that had had 100,000 downloads. Wow. So Uh, Yeah, that's what I said.
1: (laughs) Wow. Uh, I reckon if we do a thousand more episodes of um, Space Nuts, (laughs) we might get that many downloads.
2: No, no, look, we're working on it, Andrew. We're working on it. Um, Mm. it, But anyway, I'm very happy with that. So uh, if I may encourage Space Nuts uh, listeners not to desert us because we love you all, but if you want to listen to what's in the May night sky in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, the place to go is abc.net.au slash sky tour, S-K-Y-T-O-U-R-Y. One word.
1: And for those of you in the northern hemisphere listening to us, all you have to do is move south.
2: <laughs> and you'll be welcome with open Absolutely arms. Absolutely
1: welcome with <laughs> open arms. There's no room in the motel where Fred is because there You're are 3,000 TV crew there at the moment. But uh, we'll find somewhere for you. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's been a great venture and it's really exciting and it's fun to watch and everybody has a lot of fun and it's hosted by, um, uh, the Australian, um, hostess actually is a, a she's a comedian, isn't she? Yeah. She's in real well, life. She's a, a another all round good person,
2: uh, Julia Zemiro. Yes. Yeah, so she, she right. and, uh, she and Brian are partners in crime in this program, hmm. um, Julia is terrific. She has warmed to Stargazing Live as though it was, uh, you know, her own invention. Um, and uh, I, once again, it's one of the reasons why the, the programme is so popular. Um, I, uh, I, I think it's great that we've got this this nice little connection between now, between uh, the ABC in Australia and, and Brian Cox. Um, so, yes, well done, Julia. Fantastic, and well done yeah.
1: to you too, Fred, because I know um, you've put in a lot of work, everyone's put in a lot of work, lots of hours, lots of uh, unpaid overtime, lots of really yeah. crap food, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's worth that- it because uh, so many people get so much out of it.
2: I hope so, and I think it's easier for me than the 116 ABC and BBC types who are currently working on the mountain. And
1: Yes, of course, and they've picked such a warm time of year to do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Now we're going to keep moving along because uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about uh, on this week's uh, episode was this uh, discovery about um, uh, oxygen that seems to have formed not long after the Big Bang, which is quite an amazing discovery, Fred.
2: It, it is, that's right. And uh, this is a, it's a great story which uh, combines a number of different telescopes, including ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimetre Array down there in Chile. Uh, and also one of the lead authors is a friend of mine, actually, Richard Ellis, who's a, a, a very eminent professor now working at University College in London. So the story is basically that these uh, scientists have observed a galaxy uh, with the elegant name of MACS 1149 slash JD1. That uh, galaxy uh, has been uh, measured um, using, actually using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope, which of course we in Australia now have access to. Uh, that's been observed uh, and discovered to be uh, a galaxy that we see about 500 million years after the Big Bang. Now that sounds like a long time in human terms, but mm. it's it's tiny compared with the age of the universe which is 13.8 billion years so uh people have analysed the galaxy of stars and looked at what chemicals were there uh, 500 million years after the Big Bang. And what you expect to see is not much because the chemical elements come from later generations of stars. It's stars that generate, you know, things like calcium and carbon and nitrogen and all these things. They're forged inside stars. So it was a surprise to the scientists to find the signature of oxygen in the light from these stars. We do it with with by breaking the light up into its rainbow spectrum, of course, and look for this barcode of information. So um, what has been found is oxygen in stars in a galaxy, uh, which existed 500 million years after the Big Bang, in the absolute infancy of the universe. Why that is significant is that the presence of oxygen tells you that there must have been an earlier generation of stars to create the oxygen and that might have been the very first stars that formed uh, in the universe and looking at the quantities of oxygen that were found in these in this galaxy uh, and this is the work that's been done by ALMA uh, they reckon that the uh, the stars that formed that oxygen were in existence uh, only 250 million years after the Big Bang, a quarter of a billion years. And that is a tiny fraction of the age of the universe. So it means that star formation kicked in very early in the history of the universe and the formation of these elements like oxygen.
1: I'm just doing the maths. One fifty second of the existence of the universe. Uh, Absolutely right
2: um 2 2%. Two that's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um what is also fascinating about this is we can't see it. We we yeah. haven't seen it. This is so so how do they know? I mean, they they think they might be able to see it in the not With too distant future. Bigger
2: telescopes, that's right. So so what you've got is the the things that you can see uh, are the, the stars in this galaxy um which is you know, nearly, nearly the edge of the universe away in its light travel time. So you can see the stars in the galaxy that's seen as it was 500 million years after the Big Bang. But it's the fact that they, those stars have oxygen in them that tell you that there was an earlier generation of stars, even though those stars cannot be seen uh, because they're too far away. That's not the cleaner out there, is it? It's just gone past the window, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, I love you know?
1: podcasting. Anything can happen.
2: It's either cats or horses usually, but this time it's (laughs) the (laughs) kids.
1: Oh, dear. Yeah, and and, um, this is what I I guess um, some people struggle with in terms of our capacity to observe the universe, and we've done it many times in in terms of discussion, that we're looking at history. Every time we look up, we're looking at the past. Yeah, we are. The further we look, I mean, trying to look at the Big Bang itself, if we could look at it and see it, we'd be looking at something 13 million years ago because the light of that event is only reaching us now. That's and absolutely. we're moving away from there um, progressively. <laughs> yeah. So it's all a bit, you know, screws with yeah. your brain. It, it
2: does screw with your brain because there's t- so many things going on simultaneously. But the, the the bottom line in this one is, it's yes, it's about the look-back time, the fact that when you look at very distant objects, you're looking back in time by a huge amount. It gives astronomers you know, uh, 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 basically an attribute that no other branch of science has really, apart from perhaps geology, where you're looking directly back at the rocks, ancient rocks of the Earth. But we can look back at, uh, at events taking place, in fact, uh, back in the early universe, which is quite extraordinary.
1: Mm. And what we are waiting for, as you and I have also discussed previously, is the um, the launch of the James Webb. Space Observatory, because they reckon that will be able to see what we're we're talking about here. That's right. (laughs) This this early oxygen.
2: Yeah, the first generation of stars Mm. generating oxygen. That's right.
1: Amazing. Incredible. Um, That's quite a discovery. And we'll hear more about that, no doubt, in future episodes. Uh, You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson there. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Back to the show. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now we're going to talk about a mission that has uh, launched, uh, which is aimed at doing something a little bit different. We've, we've talked about this in the past as well, uh, regarding the replacement of satellites in orbit, uh, specialist satellites, interesting satellites, Fred, and these new satellites are uh, going to, well, they're going to measure water. <laughs> uh, amongst other things that's right mm. um, I- I'm
2: delighted to see this actually so this is the launch of a pair of uh, satellites it's a joint US-German uh, project uh, I think the launch was about a week ago uh, the uh, the Satellites are called GRACE and it's a pair of them. GRACE is an acronym, of course. It's a lovely one, actually. I think it's one of the best acronyms. Uh, it stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment.
1: Nice. Oh, That's GRACE, exactly yeah, it is nice. nice.
2: Um, but it's not the first one. So the original GRACE, and it, it, once again, it was two satellites, uh, they were in orbit from 2002 to 2017. So 15 years of work. Oh. Uh, and what they are about, as you guess from the, the title, Gravity Recovery, uh, is about detecting uh, basically the changes in the gravity of the Earth as you pass over it, which are brought um, and they, they are due to uh, things like the oceans of the Earth or the mountains of the Earth. You can sense the gravity, the gravitational pull of these different things. Uh, the way the spacecraft work is that uh, you've got two of them. They're both in uh, exactly the same orbit around the Earth, uh, but they're 220 kilometers apart, so one's leading the other one. And the really neat bit, and this blows my mind, Andrew, they're 220 kilometers apart, but at any instant, the separation between them is known to an accuracy of a thousandth of a millimeter. (laughs) And and it's because of that. So you're sensing the separation
0: yeah.
2: uh, using microwaves, if I remember rightly. And then um, as one, uh, the the front one passes over something that's got a little bit more mass and therefore has a bigger gravitational pull, that pulls it forward a bit. And you can sense the difference, you know, the, the change in the distance between them. Mm. And so by very clever computation, uh, as these things orbit the Earth, you can build up a map showing... The the basically the gravitational differences in the uh, over the Earth's surface. Now, the original Grace experiment turned out to be really good at uh, uh, sensing what's called the hydrological cycle, the way water works yeah. uh, on on the Earth's surface. Um, things like. Uh, you know, the land changing shape after prolonged rain, uh, ice melting and draining into the oceans, uh, polar ice, things of that sort, and and the movements of the oceans themselves. This is really fantastic stuff, but Grace is very, very good at that. And s- such was the success of Grace that this new version has been launched. It's called Grace FO. Um, I suspect that might, might mean Grace follow on, although I'm not sure. Mm. Um, could and, be, could and be uh, something else. Uh, i wasn 't going to go there but that 's <laughs> right <laughs> um, so uh yeah so we <clears throat> there will be um, a period of of kind of settling down to get the the spacecraft into working condition, uh, but I think we will find much more interesting information about our own planet coming from the grace f o mission and uh hopefully. Uh, we might see some really spectacular results that relate to things like the way the climate is changing, the work that uh, you know, climate scientists are doing on the Earth will be reflected by, uh, by some of the, um, the, the, the results that come from the hydrological cycle.
1: Yeah, and, and it will also, I'm imagining, be able to uh, measure things like uh, the diminishing um, amount of ice on yes, Earth, exactly. Uh, sea level rises. Exactly. Uh, I also believe it can. Um, it will be able to measure the uh, the um, um, changes in the land because of drought effect. Because yes, that's right. That's loss yep. of moisture. And yep. where I am at the moment, we uh, we've basically been drought declared for a little while now, and uh, you, you can see it when you're outside. The ground is just parched. The just about everything's dead. Um, cracks are starting to appear in the ground and that's that's simply loss of moisture and yeah. Grace uh, can look at wide areas that are suffering from that kind of a problem and, and come up with some... Um very interesting information. Not that it can stop a drought, but it can at least um, look at what's uh, going that, on.
2: That's right. But um, and this is actually one of the things that's come out of the new Australian Space Agency: a discussion of this kind of thing. Because knowing about moisture in soil and things of that sort lets you develop strategies uh, in order to co- you know to compensate for that. So rather than just do things as you've as you've always done them, uh, there is a, perhaps a new um, Method of using this information to do agriculture differently, and in fact, um, it's it's known CSIRO calling it precision ag. Uh, precision ag is using space data and other data to to be more clever about where you sow your crops, uh, how you put them in, what you know, how how um, close to water sources you build them, and things of that sort.
1: Yeah, well, we've got farmers around here that are dry sowing in the forlorn yeah. hope that yeah. it will rain. It will rain. Um, yes, it's that's it's right. a throw of the dice. Yep. And they're throwing craps, unfortunately. But um, you, you know, you've got to make a decision. Maybe this sort of technology into the future will be able to say to them, "Okay, well, you know, we're we are seeing signs of this happening longitudinally, and we don't think you should waste your money on." Yes, see- that's right. That's no. that's the sort of thing exactly. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, those uh, satellites have been launched. So I suppose they'll be lining them, lining them up, sizing them up, targeting them and making sure the microwave link works and then we'll start to get some interesting data. I uh, hope we'll be talking about it very soon, yeah. Indeed. All right. You're listening to the podcast we like to call Space Nuts. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. As we tend to do uh, in the last portion of the program, Fred, we're going to look at a question. But this is a question... That has come out of something we talked about only last week uh, from Tony Dawn, uh, not to be confused with Tony Orlando and Dawn. Uh, and I think I've used that joke before. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, Tony. Uh, After listening to the multiverse topic in your May 17 Space Nuts podcast and your discussion on dark energy being a description of why the universe seems to be expanding at an increasing rate, I had an image of the kid's toy slime, which can be seemingly quite solid under some circumstances, but quite liquid under others and can seem to flow faster and faster. I believe that this is an example of a non-Newtonian fluid. Could the universe be considered as behaving as a non-Newtonian fluid. That's the question, part one. Part two, another thing that I began to contemplate after hearing that segment is whether the action of dark energy could equally be explained by a decrease in an as-yet undetected attractive force caused by the expansion of the universe. That's a great question. And I got through it without a blunder. Uh, He says, I imagine others have worked through these ideas. Do you know what conclusions have been reached? And could you let me know? And I think I can say to you, Tony, um, you're going great until you said the word conclusions. (laughs) <laughs> but it's a two-part <laughs> question. So, um, um, non-Newtonian fluid, Fred. Do you, do you come across yeah. this kind of idea? Yes, I, know.
2: I do know. I remember slime. Um, I think it's an <laughs> example of. Uh, uh, it's an example. It's green, if I remember. It yes, right it
1: me. is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember the stuff.
2: <laughs> I think it's a, an example of what's called a thixotropic fluid, uh, which is one that. Um, it has a high viscosity until you start pummeling it or, or basically um, manipulating it, and then its its viscosity changes and it becomes more liquid. Um, it is a non-Newtonian fluid, uh, and in many ways, you could probably describe the universe as a non-Newtonian fluid, because um, the the Newtonian laws simply don't work on very large scales. We we rely on. Um, well, relativistic laws, because that's the sort of the theory of relativity with its uh, emphasis on gravity, is what uh, really underlines our uh, understanding of the universe. It's it's the, the 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 foundation on which we build all models of what the expanding universe is doing. Um, I, I think um, I, I think it's a fairly long bow, uh, bow to draw to. Uh, make the comparison between a thixotrophic fluid like slime uh, and the contents of the universe. But uh, often things like that serve as really good examples to illustrate what is going on and to perhaps, um, you know, almost simulate some scientific uh, features of reality. Uh, I I would need to get my head around uh the the um details of slime to know just exactly what bit of the universe this simulates uh, but it's a good suggestion which i like very much i think um the other part of tony's question uh, you know is th- we we regard dark energy as as a sort of expansive force but could it be an, a decrease in an something, as yet yeah, something else we don't know about well the yes that's right so Um, all the best science uh, seems to indicate that there are a handful of uh, fundamental forces in nature, the weak and strong uh, nuclear forces, the electromagnetic force and gravity. Those are the four forces we know about. And everything that we've done, all of physics uh, seems to say that, yes, everything can be reduced to those four forces. So if you were trying to uh, indicate that dark energy was the result of a reducing attractive force. Your only option really, because it's the only one that works on these large scales, is gravity. And uh, if you say, okay, well the universe is full of objects like galaxies and each one of them has its own gravitational pull. If for some reason that is decreasing, What would you see? And the bottom line is that you probably wouldn't see what we detect as dark energy, because the uh, you know if the gravity of an an individual cluster of galaxies is decreasing, for example, you'd see start to see that cluster flying apart, Um, and it would be a local effect. That's the point I want to make. It will be local (laughs) rather than a global effect. And the the key thing about dark energy, and perhaps you know in some ways the most surprising thing about it is that it's everywhere. And it seems to be the same everywhere as well. It seems to be a completely uniform thing. Uh, whatever it is, we don't understand what it is, but we do know that um, as space expands, uh, dark energy expands too. So that if you've got space doubling in volume, uh, then the dark energy doubles, uh, which is bizarre. So it's it's something that is a property of space itself and not the matter within it. Um, I think that is probably all we can say at the moment about that in its yeah. relation to a potential attractive force that's decreasing. It's a great suggestion, uh, but yes, people, people have sort of looked at those those uh, prospects before. And we still come back to the idea that dark energy is a property of space, and it's a weird one.
1: It's, it's probably going to take some significant out-of-the-box thinking to really figure out what's going on and maybe we'll never know. Maybe it's just going to be one of those mysteries that we just can't unravel. We just haven't got the capacity to do it or maybe we haven't developed an instrument that will enable yeah. us to do, yeah. to really uh, get a uh, an insight into it. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about multiverse theory and, and how they tipped a bit of water on it last time. Um, <laughs> but let's assume for a moment multiverses do exist. Could it be... That our universe is feeding on another
2: yeah that that 's another one of the ideas that you 've got some sort of interactions between different universes, but if, if that were the case you you wouldn't exp- you kind of would expect something asymmetric, you know something pulling one way rather mm. than space itself just expanding uh, but uh, these you know these ideas and particularly ideas that involve the multiverse mm-hmm. they 're so um, Vague is the wrong word. They are they're ill-defined, they're ill-constructed because we haven't really got to grips with the kind of physics that you need to describe a multiverse mm-hmm. and what the, uh, the you know the effect of one universe well, on another I mean, might be.
1: I'm making an assumption that they all you know if they do exist, they exist uh, like they cohabit. Uh, Maybe so, so. that they're that's next right. to each other. But who's to suggest that that's the case? They might all be overlapping and intermingled, exactly, interdimensionally.
2: Yeah, it, that, that's right. Because because you're probably looking at higher dimensional spaces anyway. Mm.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> this this conversation, uh, Andrew, is now formally the blind leading the blind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but, but it, it creates interesting thoughts and debates. And, right. and um, that's that's you know half the time that's what it's about because we don't have the answers. So you you start throwing around ideas and you <clears> you <throat> think well, okay, that could be the case. Then you investigate that and go, nope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yes well, that 's right, and
2: and what I was going to say, <clears throat> um, I am pretty confident that we will find an answer to dark energy that will that will fit you know all that we understand about the universe, and the reason I say that is i 'm surrounded by colleagues who 've got such interesting and as you say out of the box ideas. About how you can test for different things, uh, things that I would never have thought of, um, because I make things out of you know fiber optics and bits of string and sticky tape and things like that. These guys are, are devising experiments that that would. Test between different models of, say, uh, you know, a multiverse or a single universe, and that's where science is going. That's the beauty of science: that ingenuity often leads to very clever answers.
1: Well, we can never say never to anything. I mean, if you go back a few hundred years and say to Christopher Columbus or James Cook, hey, you won't have to do this in the future because you'll be able to go into a machine and they will fly you across." Yeah, that's right. The ocean. Yeah, they go. They'd throw you overboard. In your dreams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, who knows what's next? Who knows what yeah. we're going to discover? It's, exactly. uh, that's what makes it so exciting.
2: Indeed. Mm. Absolutely.
1: Well, Fred, I'm going to let you get some sleep because <laughs> it's been a long couple of days and it's not over yet, but by the time this podcast is published, uh, you'll be in a cocoon somewhere, I think.
2: I hope so, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Great hopefully to we can talk to. to you next week.
2: Yeah, sounds good.
1: Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Keep your cards and letters and emails and posts coming in via whatever platform you deem necessary, and we look forward to joining you again on the podcast Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.